submitted for the approval of the Midnight Society. We call this story... Monsters, Madness, and Magic. Welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic podcast. I am Justin, joined by my co-host Angelique. Say hello, Angelique. Hello. And this evening we're joined by a very special guest, author, director, producer, man of many hats and talents, the man that made us all afraid of the dark, Mr. DJ McHale. DJ, how the hell are you? I am awesome, and I'm not afraid of the dark. Gosh, maybe that was a maybe that was a big reveal. I shouldn't have said that. Spoiler alert. <laughs> that was my final question. You just uh, completed the interview. <laughs> Thank you and good night. <laughs> so I guess we could just start at the beginning here. So how would you say as a child, how was your creativity cultivated? Were you devouring books, films, and your parents encourage you? Just take us back in time. Uh yes, yes, and yes. Um you know, I, the one thing I can't answer, because I don't know the answer to it, is is why I was always drawn to the macabre and the scary and the odd and, and whatnot. I, I have no idea. You, know, you could ask my therapist if I had a therapist, but I always was. And, uh, it, it, you know, it start the, the I, I'm going to jump way ahead here, but um when I, my partner and I created Are You Afraid of the Dark, the original title was called Scary Tales. And Nickelodeon had said that they didn't like the title. They wanted something that was more Nickelodeon-like. And I remembered a, a story that my mother used to read to me when I was a little kid. It was a, a Dr. Seuss story called What Was I Scared Of? And it was about a pair of pale green pants with no one inside them. And God, I love that. I can still hear my mother's voice reading that story to me. And it was called, What Was I Scared Of? And so I thought back to that story and the title, What Was I Scared Of? Well, I wasn't afraid of the dark, but afraid of the, afraid of the dark. Are you, are you afraid of the dark? So, so roundaboutly, that title came from something that I watched when I was a, a little kid. Um, but growing a little bit older, um, actually, maybe, you know, the answer to this question may be my mother, because she liked that stuff. Yeah. She used to call them, ooh, yeah, stories. Oh yeah. <laughs> and and uh, there was one book she read to me that I've since I found again for my daughter. It was called The Children of Green No. Um, and it was a story about a, a kid who went to stay with his aunt in a house that was haunted by the children who used to live there. And for some reason that always appealed to me. And, and I'm not so sure it appealed to me because of the horror aspect. I'm, I'm truly not a horror fan, right? but I am a mystery fan. Mm-hmm. And, and with all spooky, eerie, Twilight zone ghost stories, there's always a mystery. It's like, why is this happening? So I think I'm as much drawn to the mystery of things as I am to the, the pure horror of the thing. And that's always been the case. And, and then I read a bunch of, you know, growing a little bit older, Alfred Hitchcock used to have these uh, compendiums of short stories that he put together and like Alfred Hitchcock's ghostly galleries. And there'd be a, you know, really thick book with like 12 stories in it, short stories. So I always read those and I always had creepy and eerie magazines. And, and uh, my friend Frank and I used to go to this theater in one town over from where we grew up. Every Saturday, they had some horror matinee. And these were like gruesome horror movies from Yugoslavia and stuff, you know, stuff you've never seen before or since, nobody you oh, want wow. to. Um, <laughs> just, let's just say, oh God, I'm still warped from watching these things. Um, so yeah, for whatever reason, yeah, I was I was steeped in that kind of stuff. Um, and and I, as I said before, I think it's mostly the mystery aspect of it, of trying to sleuth it out. 
within the context of a really kind of fun, creative and scary environment. So that, that's really what, what always attracted me to it. All right. So where did you grow up? In Connecticut. Oh, okay. uh, New, New England. Yes. Yeah, so, well, but well, it's re- yes, it's Connecticut, but it's just outside of New York City, so it's really more suburban New York than uh. Gotcha. And when someone when I, someone says they're from Connecticut, uh, say where, yeah, it's something like I don't know, they'll say, uh, well, from Stonington. I'm like, well, that's like real Connecticut. I'm I'm from, I'm from New York. <laughs> I, you can see Manhattan from uh, my house practically. So, uh, <laughs> gotcha. So, yeah. But but yes, New England. Yeah. Okay. So not to speak in absolutes, but I find most people can point to at least one teacher that kind of helped foster a eureka moment for them. Is that the case for you as well? Um, a couple and, and not so much eureka in terms of the kind of stories I was telling, but um, I can actually I can name three. Um, when when I was in school, I actually hated to write. And what I came to realize is that what I hated about it was the discipline that it took. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't like sitting still in that chair. Um, I still don't, frankly. But I did like telling stories. And there was a teacher, in, interestingly enough, there was a, uh, there were two, two people, oh boy, that, this is even going way back. I just <laughs> thought about this because I came across something the other day. Um, my mom passed away a couple of years ago. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's been, she hasn't haunted me since. Um, but I, I, there's a box of a lot of her papers that I came across and there was a, a report, my kindergarten report card. Yes. She kept my kindergarten report card. And back in the, nowadays, kindergarten is way different. Back then it was like organized play mostly, but now they're like giving Ted talks, I think. But, um, <laughs> but, but the report card was mostly VG, you know, very good, good, satisfactory, that kind right. of thing. But there was a place you, where you could write comments and the teacher is Lowenthal wrote Donnie, which is what they called me then, Donnie far prefers creative play than learning his numbers. Imaginative play, that was the word, imaginative play. So it's almost like, wow, it, it, the die was cast when I was five years old. Right. And and when I was, uh, I remember, I don't know, I think it might've been third grade, third, maybe fourth grade, where in grammar school, we had to take a test. It was a, it was a standardized test they gave you a hundred random questions. You know, there's no right or wrong answer. It's just, you had to answer the, like, do you like carrots cooked or raw? Is there a box for, I don't like carrots? And I didn't. <laughs> so, so I fill out this thing and based on all these answers, they put it into UNIVAC and they come out with what you should do for a living. And the answer was writer. Wow. And I was like, <laughs> no chance. I want to be an astronaut. What are you crazy? <laughs> not, not realizing that, that to be an astronaut, you had to like to learn your numbers. <laughs> so there was no chance of that happening on, on any level. Um, but the Eureka moments, um, I hated to write, I hated the discipline of writing. And it was in junior high school, now called middle school, where there was a teacher there who recognized that I really was having trouble with the discipline of writing and introduced me to making videos. There was, you know, it was an antiquated old black and white reel to reel video recorder. So you want to use this. And so what I started doing is, is rather than having to write reports, I would make videos. My friends and I would make videos about things. And we did that from that point to the end of high school. So I would, one eureka moment is that teacher who said, yeah, I, I see you have an opportunity here to do something that maybe you're having trouble with. The other, the other two, one was in that same period, there was a biology teacher 
who <laughs> we had to do a report on a really exciting topic, uh, algae, <laughs> also known as seaweed. And, and I didn't want to write this report. And that's when I did the first video. To, I went to the teacher and said, instead of writing a report on algae, can I, can I make a video about it instead? And she was like, yeah, I guess. You know, this is back in the days where this just wasn't done. Right. Uh, you know, nowadays you can do it on your phone. If there's nothing. <laughs> mm -hmm. but, but back then it was a big deal. So, so I'll give her credit too to say, you can think outside the box to do something a little different. And then jump ahead to when I was in college, I was a film student and um, had to take writing as, as a film major. And I went to this teacher, his professor, and I said, this is going to be ugly. And she said, why? And I said, I hate to write. And she laughed at me and she said, DJ, you like to tell stories, right? Yeah. You like to make up stories, right? Yeah. And, and you tell the stories, yeah. And based on the reaction you get when you tell the stories, you change your story, like you make it funnier or scary, whatever. Term. Yeah. Doofus, what do you think writing is? And I was like, <laughs> Oh, <laughs> so so all those years of junior high and high school, I was thinking I was getting out of writing by making movies. She goes, you probably wrote more than any kid who ever went through those schools. <laughs> like, oh, okay, fine. So so those teachers, I think those are pretty real aha moments of right. opening up doors that I didn't realize were there. And right. I was smart enough to kind of walk through them and that led to becoming a writer. Now you say you don't you didn't like writing growing up. Did you did you enjoy reading? Were you oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, it's going back to those things I said I I read. Though I though I have a very oh this is this is good. Uh, well, you be the judge of that. Um, <laughs> I have the things you remember from high school. You know, it, it's remarkable the things that stick with you. Um, I remember the first day I was in tenth grade at this really, and I went to a public school, but it was a pretty highfalutin public school. And, uh, and because I was always good in English, I was always kind of in the advanced English classes. In the math class, I was with the sweat hogs. But, but with, the, <laughs> with the English classes, I was like with the front line guys. And it was the first day of this class. And the teacher went around the room and asked everyone what they read over the summer. And every last student, I, I don't know if they were telling the truth or they're just trying to impress her, but it was all, you know, this, oh, I read, uh, you know, Thoreau's Walden and, I, and I've read the, you know, I read the, I read that. And I'm thinking, well, I'm going to tell the truth. <laughs> and I said, I read, like I said to you before, I read all of Alfred Hitchcock's short stories, the ghostly gallery of stories. <laughs> and there's a guy sitting next to me. I won't mention his name in case he ever hears this, but I remember him. And he snickered he's just like <clears throat> and i was like i felt like two inches tall i was totally being intellectually bullied by someone who who said, thought that oh you're just reading those you know pub child's type stories i want to find that guy today and say i made a pretty good career have writing those exact same stories that you were <laughs> snickering at back in high school <laughs> who's the guy snickering at hitchcock in high school huh yeah, well, it's not that Hitchcock wrote them, but <laughs> he, he put his name on. But but it was like, I'm, I remember some of the stories. It was like Daphne du Maurier's The Birds was one of the stories. Right. The, the Monkey's Paw was one of the stories was in there. So this is, you know, you know, it's not highfalutin literature by any means, but it's classic 
short classical literature regardless yeah exactly so so uh one of these days if i ever run across this guy again i'm gonna say yeah you i i I used to get looks like that when i would read you know stephen king in you know free you know free time i would just be reading and like what are you reading Uh, cujo why (laughs) because it's good what's it about what you see the cover it's pretty obvious what it's about. <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't but, know what you want me to say. <laughs> but Stephen King is such a great example because whether you like the particular book, he's, he's written eight million, so you know you're not going to like yeah. it. Yeah. But whether you like it or or don't like it or whatever, just the experience of reading, it's just it's like putting on a familiar pair of shoes and enjoying mm-hmm. it just the way. Yeah. It doesn't matter if it's the Shawshank Redemption or uh, mm-hmm. uh, Cujo right it's just such an enjoyable read it's a candy bar for your brain yeah (laughs) Yeah. dj do you remember the very first script that you ever wrote (laughs) yes uh, that i got paid for yes um and i and i saved it i have it and i and i stuck it it's like in a scrapbook um when i first got out of college i went to film school and um i was fortunate in that my waiter's job you know, the actors who work as waiters jobs while they're trying to get acting gigs. Right. You know, while I'm trying to get in the entertainment business, um, I was fortunate that my waiter's job was actually in the film business. Um, it granted the lowest rung of the film business. Um, I, over maybe five or six years, I produced, wrote, directed, was a PA early on in, in the wonderful world of industrial films. <laughs> industrial films are such a huge umbrella there are corporate videos how-to videos video news releases um instructional video you know you name it anything that someone pays you to make a movie i made all these things and the the first script that i was actually paid to write was a public public service announcement for the american veterinary medical association warning people about the dangers of parvovirus in dogs You got to cut your teeth somewhere. <laughs> yeah. and, and to this day, I see someone walking with a puppy. I'm like, you know, that dog's had his parvo shots, right? <laughs> and it goes back. That was the very first thing that I wrote oh. that I got paid for anyway. So what does your outlining process look like? Um, I, I do that. This is a controversial topic because whenever I'm like in a uh, an event with other authors, there's usually two camps. There is the outliners, and that's a pretty general term but but there's the outliners or the planners let's put it that way there's the planners and then there's the wingers no we're gonna wing it right um i'm a planner because because my stories are as i said we talk about the mystery aspect because my stories are so intricately plotted i need to know how the story is going to end before i can decide where it's going to begin mm-hmm so, I mean, think if you're going to do a, a murder mystery, you have to know who done it <laughs> because, exactly. because then you work backwards and you put in the clues and the misdirections and all, all that kind of stuff. So the, the most, I have two, there, there are kind of three periods when I'm writing a book and I guess it applies to scripts too. Two of them I love, one I don't love. The, the two that I love, the first one that I love is the very beginning where it's just ideas. It's just in my head, you know, going back to, I hate the discipline of it. Right. There's no discipline there. It's just, call it an outline. I just write down notes. It's just 
blue skying a story in my head. It's telling the story in my head and just writing down notes. The, the writing process is even irrelevant to it. It's just a way to, for me to say, okay, what's the story about from the broad point of view? It's about this guy and who's the guy, where's he gonna end? And what's what's the big challenge here? And, and how's it gonna end? And then I kind of sort of rough out a general arc of how it's gonna happen, where some of the big twists and turns are. With my Pendragon series, I outlined all 10 books in about a week. Whoa. And, wow. Yeah. And but But it's because I outlined the whole story, meaning the whole story that's contained in 10 books. Yes. So I didn't outline each every, I knew generally what was going to happen in each every book, but it was really more like I figured out which big touchstones of the big story, where they're going to happen in each one of the books. So it's really, I thought of the grand story, which took yes. place over five years. So, so it's not quite as impressive as it sounds. <laughs> um, <laughs> So once, once I do that kind of note-taking outlining type thing where I'm confident, it's like, okay, this story does work. Because the last thing I want to do is sit down with a glass of wine and some music playing and, and a candle and start saying, once upon a time, let's see where my muse takes me. No chance. Because last thing I want to do is spend a month writing something and then only to find out that I've hit some, there's some fatal flaw that I hadn't thought of. That means it's a dead end and everything I had done is not going to work. So I try to hit all the big broad strokes to say, okay, generally speaking, I know this is going to work. Then I throw away the outline. Then I write once upon a time. That's the second part of the, 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 the three things, the one I like the least (laughs) because, (laughs) because that's the grunt work. That's the sitting down. It's writing the words that people are going to read. That's the other beauty of an outline. No one's ever going to read the outline. It's just notes to myself. And it's really easy to change things around. Now I'm writing words that people are going to actually read theoretically. Um, that's the hard part for me. Um, but I, I deliberately throw away the outline and just, then I let the story go where it's going to go. But I've already kind of had the, so I already kind of know what it's in the back of my head. And there will be some times where I get stuck and it's like, well, what, hmm, what did I, what did I intend for this time? And I'll go back to the outline and realize, whoa, I went really far afield from where I'd originally outlined, right. but that's okay because I do know the end game. So I know ultimately where I'm gonna go. So whether I take the South route or the North route, I know eventually I'm gonna hit mm-hmm. where I'm gonna hit. So right. it wasn't wasted effort. And odds are what I came up with in the actual writing words people are gonna read process is far better than what I would've done the outline. That, that's the one downside, the one risk with writing an outline is you don't wanna be wedded to it. You don't wanna say, well, you know, you don't want to come up with a really good idea and then say, well, I can't do that because it doesn't fit the outline. Ooh, that's that's exactly. hard. You can't do that. You, yeah. you got to let the story take you where it's going to go and the characters take you where they're going to go. As long as it's you called a- creativity for a reason. Yeah, right, right. And, and, and just because you thought of it doesn't mean it's gold. <laughs> At first, I mean, you know, <laughs> you have to be open to what was I thinking? That was really terrible. <laughs> um, then the third part um, that I start liking again is after I've typed the end on a first draft and then going back to rework it. Right. Cause, cause it's all like the, the, the clay is kind of generally all there and molded into a shape. Then it's fun to kind of move things around. And then you just and, go and, polish it behind Polish yourself. it and, yep. and it come up with new ideas. So that, then it gets fun again. Um, but that's, so, so I definitely outline and it's mostly because I don't want to hit that dead end. Right. Of a story that, that it's like, why didn't I think of that? Oh my God, I just wasted two months. So, so that's that's pretty much my my process of doing it. And by the way, and I'm I'm sometimes I don't consider myself a writer. I'm like a rewriter. 
because <laughs> I'll write a bunch of pages, especially with books. I'll write a bunch of pages. And then the next day, first thing I do is I go to the beginning of those pages and rewrite those pages going forward. Right. So people say, well, how many drafts did you do? It's like, well, officially, I don't know, four or five. Unofficially, 300. <laughs> because you're constantly <laughs> rewriting all the time. Right. Thank God for word processing. Back when I was writing a typewriter, that would never happen. Does your, is your book outlining different from your script outlining? Or is it the same process for both? It's pretty much the same process. The, the, the biggest difference is um, most of the things that I write are half hours, the TV that I write are half hours. So it's, it's a much shorter process. And, and that the rhythm of a half hour show, I've written so many half hour episodes of shows that I've got that rhythm down like that. So I can just boom, boom, boom. I know exactly what the turn's going to be. This is going to happen. It's fine. No, all, all the details are different, but the rhythm I've got down. So I, 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 I do outline it, but it's much easier than, right. easier only because it's shorter. That, that's it so uh correct me if i'm wrong here but i saw in previous interviews you didn't initially intend to write towards like young adults and kids but that's what came out of you uh do you find that more do you find it more freeing to write further a certain age group or because adults sort of have an expectation of being like super serious or this story has to be this way and it's kind of kids just are kind of going in with an open mind in general well it's well, the funny thing about that is that it doesn't happen so much anymore. And that's, I think, because, well, let me, let me say the, 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 what I faced a lot. People used to say to me, oh, you're right. It's like, when are you going to write something real? Like writing for kids isn't real. Exactly. It, the reason I say it's changed a little bit is because suddenly writing for kids is become a lot more lucrative than writing for adults. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Harry Potter. But um Plus, also, I think adults kind of are more drawn towards the younger stuff now than they used to be either. Yeah, but, we're sick of the real world now. We want some. Yes. <laughs> Talk about Stephen King, young adult novels, which aren't even so much young adults anymore, but even middle, I mean, Harry Potter is a middle grade novel. That's not even young adult. That's middle grade. And adults mm -hmm. are reading that. So, because it's it's a candy bar for the brain. Um, so, so, and it, it but it, to answer your question, um, it, it really is just what came out. It's just, the, it's my attitude. It's it's my thinking. I, I'll go back to something that I got. I hope the story is true. I forgot where I heard it, um, but I always say it. So I hope it's true that someone once asked Stephen King, why do you write horror stories? And he said, uh, that's what comes out. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> has he ever written a romantic comedy? Mm -mm, no, <laughs> that's not coming out. <laughs> so, Anytime I've even thought of of saying, oh, I'm going to write something that's a little older, excuse adult, um, it still feels young because it's just my style. It's the way I look at things. It's the way I write. It's it's I, I kind of write irreverently. I don't believe me. No one's ever accused me of writing great literature, but I do spin a good yarn, and it's and it just appeals more to the. I say I write for the young and the young at heart. Well said. It sounds sounds like I'm doing something important. <laughs> So you're you... certainly an. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> you were certainly an important part of 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 my Saturdays for a long time. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but but you probably were young, actually young then. <laughs> right. So DJ, just take us through how "Are You Afraid of the Dark" came to be. Like, how did it go from an idea to being on the screen? Uh, it it. Um... I start after doing those uh, corporate videos I was telling you about and, and, and 
industrial films, um, I was constantly trying to write entertainment stories, you know, uh, scripts. And it's getting nowhere because I was just writing adult stuff and it was bad. And where I started to get um, some traction was in writing kids stuff. And I, I wrote a bunch of ABC after school specials. Um, so that kind of got me my foot in the door of entertainment television. Then I had written <laughs> I had, a, a guy who became my partner was producing a the TV adaptation for HBO of the Encyclopedia Brown Boy Detective books, which was a big successful series that went on forever. And he's looking for a writer to translate it to the screen. And he saw an ABC after school special that I wrote, which was about, you know, if you remember, you guys may be too young for this, but those ABC after school specials were on for 20 years. There were all these kind of earnest stories that were on ABC after school and they were special, <laughs> but all these kind of moralistic kind of earnest type stories. And the one that I wrote that really got kind of notoriety was, was about a, um, the issue was about a high school couple, boy and a girl who were, they were like T-H-E couple. They were just the perfect couple. Everything is perfect and all that kind of stuff. And then the holiday times coming around and it turns out the girl's Jewish and the boy's Christian. And there's an issue over a nativity scene that was put on public property. And that kind of split them up saying, well, wait a minute, should, should there be a religious thing on public property? Yeah, but it's Christmas. So that was the kind of earnest issue that I did. So it was a very, it was really good actually uh, for an ABC after school special. And so my, this guy, Ned Candle is his name. He's looking for a writer for Encyclopedia Brown. And he saw this after school special and I don't know how he put the dots together, but he said, hmm. I'll bet that guy who wrote this earnest thing about these kids suppression of church and state where there's a Holocaust survivor and all that kind of stuff. I bet he can write a silly mystery about a boy detective. <laughs> and he was actually right. He, he does. So, so he hired me to write that series. That was the first series that I did. I didn't produce it at all. I just, I just wrote it. it. It kind of ended bad. It was a really good show on HBO, but it ended badly for a couple of reasons. Uh, more personality wise nothing to do with me or, or ned um, <laughs> it should have gone on forever because it was a really good series but but there were some issues personality issues there and uh so ned and i said hey why don't we make our own show up we did so well with encyclopedia brown we don't have to get anybody else's stuff so he had just done a uh, a direct-to-video thing that was a sports thing and he had a contract with a cigarette company that that whoever bought a carton of cigarettes got one of these videos and and he got like a dollar for everyone that's that sold. He made like a million dollars. It was crazy. That's how much oh smoke back in the late 80s, I guess. So he said, let's come up with something that's like a, a direct-to-video thing and we can maybe we can emulate this thing. So I came up with this idea that we didn't really call it this, but it was bedtime stories for lazy parents. <laughs> and the idea was that we would get some uh, some old time actor who was out of work, but people recognized, and we put him in a big cushy chair in front of a fireplace, and probably wearing a sweater and you know Mr. Rogers looking type thing, and he'd have a book that said fairy tales on it, and he would uh, and he'd read fairy tales to the kids, and we'd record it and we package it and sell a million and make a lot of money, and parents who were lazy didn't feel like reading to their kid that night, they'd pop the video in and let Mr. Old Time Actor tell the fairy tales. Where we hit a brick wall was where we said, okay, well, what are the stories going to be? And then it got boring. 
it's like, well, it's going to be like Little Red Riding Hood, uh, you know, Three Little Pigs. That's kind of, uh, that's not very good. So Ned asked me the infamous question. He said, what kind of stories did you like when you were a kid? Kind of like you asked me first off here. He said, <laughs> what kind of stories did you like when you were a kid? And I said, I liked scary stories. So suddenly fairy tales became scary tales. But then that was weird having some old guy reading scary stories to a kid and you know come here little boy and here's the you know that doesn't <laughs> so we're like we didn't want the storyteller to be like the crypt keeper you know that right. doesn't work. so so it's like well what's the situation where you can tell scary stories and the storyteller's not scary how about sitting around a campfire that's when people tell scary stories so the old guy goes away the fireplace goes away it becomes a campfire multiple kids sitting around the campfire but then we thought well why are we just telling the story why don't we actually show the story mm. suddenly the budget goes up and it can no longer be direct to video. And so we, that's when we pitched it as a TV show. And we went to Nickelodeon and said, that's what we want to do. We're going to have a bunch of kids sitting around a campfire telling scary stories. We're going to leave the campfire, see the story. And it's going to be really scary. It's not going to be like Scooby-Doo scary. You know, it's going to be stuff's going to happen within reason. But at the end, we'll always come back to the campfire to find out it was just made up. And they said, nope, can't do it. Nope. You know, can't scare little kids. I mean, nothing like that had been done on TV at that point. Right. So they just said, you can't do it. So, okay. So we left. Um, about a year later, we went back to Nickelodeon to pitch them another series, which they said no to. We ended up selling it to Showtime um, <laughs> and making it. But as we're leaving that meeting, they're like, so what about that scary tale show? Is anyone interested in that? And we were like, Oh yeah, we're getting a lot of interest in that show. Uh, yeah, we just yeah, we're <laughs> no. It's been what had happened is in that interim year they had hired a new uh, production executive, development executive, named Jay Mulvaney, who was going through the reject files, and he pulled out this three-page thing. It was my pitch for Scary Tales, and he went to his bosses and say, "How come we're not doing this thing? This is good." So that's when they came back to us to say come up with a new title, <laughs> which I did, and we'll make it. So we, in 1991, oh, 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 but then they said, so then I had to write a couple more scripts to make sure it had legs, uh, which I did. And uh, and then they called us in for a meeting and said, um, and we're like, this is it, we're gonna get our show, yay, here we go. And they said, yeah, we really love your show, yay. We wanna make your show, yay, but we don't wanna pay for your show, yay. What? <laughs> oh. <laughs> excuse me <laughs> is it, we'll pay for half of it if you can come up with the other half of the budget we'll make the show great so the brilliant producer that my partner is he found the other half of the money he went up to canada found a production company or a distributor mostly they did animation they hadn't done any live action but they said well, you put up the other half of the money we can make the show and then you get foreign distribution. So uh, so they did. And that's why we ended up shooting the show in Canada because half the money came from Canada and in order to get the money, you got to shoot it in Canada. So that's why we went up there. And that's, we made the pilot in 1991. And then six months later, we got the series and was off to the races from there. Did you ever get any reasoning from them why they didn't want to uh, foot the full bill or was it just, we don't want to pay for it? It, it wasn't uncommon as I oh, learned. Okay. I mean, this is the first time that I, had done a series. I, I was just like, oh, okay, fine. 
Um, those co-productions were pretty common. They had a number of other shows that did the same thing. It's because all they wanted, it, it, the, the models are a little different nowadays, especially with the streamers. But back then, all they cared about was Nickelodeon domestic. That's all they cared about. And if they could pay half the freight to get it, they didn't mind having some other company having the rest of the world because they didn't want the rest of the world. They didn't care right. about the rest of the world. So, so it was just a way for them to get something for half price and they got it for half price and got a hundred percent of what they wanted. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that that's a great business deal from their perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the models are a little bit different now because things are a little bit more global now, especially because of streamers, but that's the sort of things happen quite a bit that way. Okay. Back, back in those days. Yeah. Just speaking of someone like grew up watching the show, like I feel that one of the aspects that lured me in and kept me there was for the most part, uh, the same kids were always used or for long stretches, it was always the same kids. So it felt like you were meeting up with friends, you know, and sitting around a campfire and hearing the stories. Was that always the plan or did it just end up happening that way that the same kids stuck around for so long? Well, it, it, it's funny you say that because the plan, what, it, knowing that it's an anthology series and anthology series are tough because when you, with any TV show, series what brings people back is that they want to see what happens to the characters because they get to know just like you said they get to know the characters they want to know what happened with the high whether it's a drama or a comedy too they get used to those characters well with the anthology you don't have that ability because it's a whole different cast every week mm -hmm. so i knew that even going in and i thought well besides the fact we have the storytelling concept but we thought no this this is good because they will be the constant they will be in every episode. Um, so we did it for all the right reasons. But, and I've, I've admitted this before, and, and, and I was wrong. Um, I, I was right for setting the, 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 the model to do it that way. Where I was wrong was, I really, once we got underway, I discounted the value of that. Mm -hmm. Because to me, the least interesting thing about those episodes was the campfire it was the exact same freaking thing it was it was i wrote all those campfires i wrote every well except in the first season i had some of the writers do it and that proved to be too cumbersome so i ended up writing all even episodes i didn't i wrote the campfires for everything and and we'd shoot them all in about a 10-day period no seven-day period we shoot one in the morning, one in the afternoon. It was the easiest thing to do. That was a tough show to make, but the campfires are the, it's just, there was one set. Right. <laughs> five kids sitting around, six kids sitting around. How do you make this look interesting? You know, it was, to me, that was the least interesting part of the show. So when people refer, it, it always bothers me when people say, uh, you know, when you did those last two seasons, they weren't as good. But they say the reason they weren't as good is they didn't like the Midnight Society as much. And I'm like, A, I think you're missing the point because- who cares? Apparently they, they did. But but it's only because if if the kids from the, the last two seasons were the first kids, you would have liked them more. <laughs> it's, just, mm -hmm. yeah. it's just different. So because they were ever a bit as good as the first one. Um, but it, it's been in more recent years. Believe me, I talk about that show more today than I did when I was making it. Um, and, and I have a theory that <laughs> that. 90s kids are, are starting to feel their mortality now <laughs> so oh, yeah so, we are yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it happens to the best of us sorry <laughs> it's inevitable um 
so suddenly the 90s, suddenly nostalgia becomes a part of your life where you never thought of that before. You have something to look back on and suddenly now you're looking back at the 90s. So suddenly all 90s are a big thing nowadays. So I, we finished making that show in 2000. Um, it, it fell off every radar you could imagine, including mine. I just, I just didn't talk about it. I, I, I mentioned to people, so I used to make the show like, oh, I love that show. Boom, that was it. Now, and I thought a lot of it has to do with social media and all that kind of stuff. Oh my God, I, there isn't a day that goes by that I don't talk to somebody about that show or, or email or text or whatever it happens to be. Um, so I'm hearing the comments. I'm hearing things like, oh, well, what I'm hearing is how important what you said, how important the Midnight Society was and the continuity of that Midnight Society. So that's why I say I was wrong because I really kind of discounted the value of the Midnight Society but they had huge value. Right. And, and very much. I will at least argue that I recognize that in the beginning, the value they would have. <laughs> it was only after that that I'm like, okay, it was like the taking for granted. It's like, okay, I got the campfire account. Let's get that done. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> the show was so flipping hard to make. <laughs> the, the, the campfire was like a, a vacation. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, so that was the intent. Um, I also tried to give each kid enough not just their own personality, but you'd always kind of know the kind of story they would tell. Um, so you'd say, oh, that would be, and, and it's not like I was looking for a Betty Ann story. It's when I put together a season, people would pitch me ideas and I pick the ideas that I'd like. And I'd say, Ooh, who, who do I assign the story to? Who is this most likely to go to? Um, and I had to make sure there were six kids. I had to make sure that with 13 episodes every season, each one had to get at least two. Right. We got the third. So no one's going to get three and something at one. Um, so I did, there was a conscious effort there to say, okay, this is definitely a, a, a Gary story or, or something like that. So, so there, I, I didn't, I didn't phone it in with them, but I, but I, but I, but I discounted the, uh, the value and I was, and I was wrong. So my two personal favorite episodes are the tale of the midnight madness and tale of the dead man's float. You probably hear those all the time. Well, Midnight Mattis is my favorite too. Oh, cool. Well, kudos to you. You wrote that one, I'm assuming. <laughs> I, I did. Yeah. <laughs> but the reason the reason it's my favorite is is not because I think it's the best episode. Maybe it is. I don't know. It's all subjective as to what's the best episode. But it we shot that at the beginning of the second season. And it was the first episode we did. I mean, the first season, I was just trying to figure it out. It's like, how are we going to do I don't know. We're just making up as we're going along. Second season, suddenly everyone is, every, when I say everyone, I mean the crew, because we had the same crew through seven seasons. Um, everyone kind of got to know each other. Everyone knew the shorthand. And that was the first episode I thought that we were hitting on all cylinders. Right. Like, wow, this mm -hmm. is so I, so I, It's more here than it is. So, I mean, I think it's a really good episode, but, but it, it holds a place in my heart. Yeah, it sort of sounds like your experience as going to the theater growing up. Now that you mentioned it earlier, I'm thinking about the episode with the uh, Dr. Vink. Mm -hmm. It's the exact same thing. It was based yeah. on that. It's it's and Dr. Vink says, ah, the smell of stale popcorn. That's it was that theater <laughs> that my friend Frank and I used to go to uh, to watch uh, the horror movies. I, it's absolutely taken from that <laughs> <laughs> or inspired by that, I should say. So the, the dead man's float just sticks out back in the day is really, it was scary because I grew up watching horror movies. I shouldn't have watched, you know, so the show didn't really scare me, but I enjoyed it because it was sort of horror themed, but the tale of dead man's float scared me because 
it almost looks like the tar man from return of the living dead the uh, and i'm just like man that's some gnarly effects for a kid's <laughs> show like who specifically on that uh monster who did the effects and did, were you just like damn yes uh, yeah <laughs> Um, I, I should say, before I answer that question, I should say that the goal of Are You Afraid of the Dark was never just to scare kids. Um, it was way more inspired by the Twilight Zone than about mm -hmm. any horrible. Right. So, so, so what I try any given season, I try to find a variety of different types of episodes. Some were flat out scary, like like Dead Man's Float. Some are more thought-provoking and eerie. Some are ghost stories. There's some are tense, like vampires. So I tried to get a, a full range of types of stories. So if you didn't like this one, that's kind of oh, romantic with a ghost that's uh, have their lost love, we're going to drown you in a pool next week. So, so I really want <laughs> you never knew what you were going to get. Um, there, there is a woman who I will forever love and be grateful to. Her name is Anique Chartier. She was the uh, the makeup artist for all seven seasons of the show and she uh, god i think this applies to a lot of the people on the show that that um we didn't know what we were getting when we got these people because they were just so great uh, and he didn't have that much experience when she started most of her stuff was on camera like tv type stuff and whatnot and i remember the meeting the, the guy who was locally i was producing it brought her in and uh I said, so you know what you're in for here? She goes, yeah, it's some kids around a campfire. And, and then I think he asked me if I could do some clown makeup. And, and she's like, yeah, I can do that. And I was like, yeah, it's a little bit more than that. <laughs> and so I started to explain what stuff was coming up. And I'll never forget the look on her face. She was kind of like, <laughs> <laughs> what? What? Yet to her credit, it, it piqued her interest. And, and she, the things that she did for that show, she, I mean, she designed, she had some help on some episodes, but, but 95% of those creatures, she designed them all. She would bake fake ears and teeth in her oven at home. She'd try different things. She, she, she was calling up people. How do I make this? How do I make hair and the thing? How do I do it? As well as doing the kids sitting around a campfire. So it, and that monster was hers there. I think she might've had a little bit of help on, on that one too. Plus, also, there's the wardrobe people that made the the, the thing right. and the hair. So oh. there's more than one. It's the is it people uh, kind of say, "Oh, it's the pretty people." Well, it was the scary people on our show. <laughs> pretty people <laughs> to make you look good. These were the effects, makeup, and they did pretty stuff too. But just remarkable, and and I'm just amazed that so many of those. I mean, she'd take a script. And we'd have a conversation and this stuff would come out of her head. There's just like, holy mackerel, that's just remarkable. And, and Dead Man's Float is one that just that image of that thing. Uh, yeah, you're right. It, it's it's that's right up there. You, you, <laughs> you remember it. I remember it clearly. I can see that thing right now. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's that's, that's a good one. And the only reason it was red was because the whole idea was that whatever the molding body was the this the genius kid who's in it figured out that if you mix this chemical mm -hmm. in the with that smell it would turn red so so he essentially turned the monster red which is why he was he was right. red so mm -hmm. that that's probably one that uh there there are four or five that i hear about all the time 
Yeah, that, I figured that was one of them. Yeah, that, that's definitely one. It was written by a fellow named Will Dixon, who actually directed a number of episodes too, but he he knocked it out of the park with that one. That was oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, my favorites are uh, the, the Pinball Wizard and the Tale of the Super Specs. The Super Specs. The, the Pinball Wizard is my least favorite episode. Oh, and, and the, the reason it's my least is not that I think, well, it is a bit. No, it's not a bad because a lot of people, you aren't alone. Trust me. A lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it always amazes. And I, it amazes me. And I thank God the people love the episode because I, I won't go into too much detail, but we did it at the end of the first season and it was a problematic concept and scripted. It was just too big. It was too big yeah. for the kind of show we were making, especially at the end of the season when we were out of money. And, and I had issues with the, I, I didn't write it. I was working with the writer and I was trying to get it. So it was in some shape that it actually was possible to shoot. And, and I wasn't even going to direct it, but I realized this is just way too big. So I said, I can't get the same. So I ended up directing it because I was not going to give it this forces on anybody else. Right. And it was the most torturous shoot of the entire series. Um, it was the only episode that took six days to shoot. Normally it's five days. And we shot in this mall where we cut, we had to shoot overnight and we'd, we'd come to work as people are closing up for the night, shoot all the way through the night and wouldn't finish until people are opening up their shops the next day. So it was this weird twisted inverted schedule. Oh God. And it, oh, was just, wow. and we just, it was, what was on the page was too big for what we were capable of pulling off. So I look at it, I just think this is the cheesiest looking thing I've ever seen. <laughs> it's, but people really like it. And there's a lot about it that's good, but, uh, but oh boy, it's I, I, with, when you're doing low budget shows, I don't want to say kid shows, but you're doing low budget shows, you, you want to do the best you can. Yes. And you want to strive to do something really good. But the thing you don't want to do is you don't want to strive so far that you fail mm -hmm. and then it looks bad. No one want to overreach. Mm -hmm. Yes, you don't want to overreach. You want to bring it right up to let's do something more than we think we're capable of doing. Go, wow, as opposed to yikes. <laughs> 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 I think there are a couple of moments in Pinball Wizard that goes over that leap into it's like, oh, God, I don't believe that. <laughs> but, but apparently I'm the only one that thinks that. So as long as those people like it. That's good. We're all <laughs> self-critical. <laughs> yeah. 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 But Super Specs is the one is the only one that actually like got under my skin that creeped me out. All the, the interdimensional ones, those all just kind of maybe just shiver a little bit, but Super Specs was just like, oh my God, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> well, those were I'm sure there that that they, I, I wrote that one actually. They um there was a and I sent away for them when I was a kid. They used to have those x-ray specs in the back of uh, magazines and whatnot. You can see through things and all it does. I've amazing. got a pair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, it says x-ray specs on it and whatnot. Mm -hmm. so that's where I got the idea for that. But, uh, and, but it also introduced Sardo, which was, which is awesome. Um, the character of Sardo. I love Sardo. <laughs> that was the guy, both with Vink and Sardo. Boy, talk about um, a, a team effort. Um, I, I wrote both those characters with Vink. It was in Phantom Cab and Sardo Super Specs. And so I wrote something, I had a concept on a page. And then there's casting. 
and so we have to find the people that can bring that to life and bring themselves to it. And we found two great actors to play those two parts. And then the director by the name of Ron Oliver directed both Phantom Cab and Super Specs. So he then set the tone with those guys on the set to create those characters. And, and plus then the, the makeup and hair, it was just such a team effort to create those two characters. And they were, unlike any other characters in, in the show, those are the two that stood out. So I was like, I'm bringing them back. So that's why they came back in, in every season because they were just that good. And that was a real team effort, starting with the script, going to the casting, going to the actors, going to the the, the director. It was it's that was a real success. I'm really I'm really proud of that. Proud of everybody involved in that. Oh, absolutely. So as a child growing up in the '90s, um, Goosebumps and Are You Afraid of the Dark were the source of many playground fights. You know, and I know you guys were around a bit before Goosebumps, but were you guys aware of that friendly uh, competition between the shows while it was going on? No, not really. Um, and it's, it's well, I guess it, maybe. Um, I've never seen Goosebumps, to be honest with you. Um, in fact, I know the guy who made it. It's a friend of mine. But but I never saw it. I mean, what little bits and pieces I saw, I thought that the tone was so very different. Yeah, I, yeah. Um, I never thought there was any real competition per se because Goosebumps had such a huge advantage over us. Meaning, um, for one, Goosebumps didn't start out as a TV show. It started out as one of the most successful book series in the history of books and continues to be to this day. So Goosebumps was an iconic franchise even before the show happened. On top of that, and we tend to forget about this nowadays, but it really was true back in the early to mid nineties. Are You Afraid of the Dark was on basic cable on Nickelodeon. Goosebumps was on broadcast. It was on Fox. Mm -hmm. So you could not compare the rate, the number of households that saw Goosebumps versus the number of households that could see Are You Afraid of the Dark wasn't even close. You had no streaming or services or anything. No, no. So, I mean, I mean, the Goosebumps was broadcast to everyone. It was free. <laughs> if you watch, I, I hear people to this day, if I say I made Are You Afraid of the Dark, like, well, we didn't have cable when I was a kid. So suddenly, you know, the universe that can watch cable is much smaller. Right. So if anything, it's like, Geez, if we were on Fox, we would, we would have been even yeah. greater than we were. So, and even then, we were getting million plus people watching a week. So, so I, it was a little bit apples content. It was apples to apples, more or less. But, but platform, it was apples to oranges. So, I, I never thought of it as a thing. And plus, also with little bits and pieces I heard and saw goosebumps, I thought that's a totally different show than what we're making. Yeah, it's a scary show for kids, but that's a whole different tone, whole different. That was much more tongue in cheek. In fact, there, there, I won't mention it, but there was one episode in particular of Are You Afraid of the Dark that we did that was my least favorite episode, not Pinball Wizard. And the reason that that um, it was my least favorite episode, and and I heard this from a lot of people, it's like, yeah, this looks more like a Goosebumps episode. Mm. You know, it's more mm-hmm. kind of arch and tongue in cheek and silly and 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 whatnot. Um, I've since grown to embrace and like that episode only because going back to what I said before of saying, you know, we want to do a bunch of different types of things. So we do a campy tongue in cheek episode too. That's okay. <laughs> they all don't have to have a serious edge to them. So. Right. Right. Now I know you're not personally involved with the recent reboot, but do you have any thoughts on it? Have you watched it? I saw the one last year. Okay. Um, I've not seen the, the current one. Um, 
looks the the one I saw last year looked pretty good. Um, uh, I thought the casting was really good. I think the director did a really good job. Um, I I won't criticize, but I, you know I feel like I'm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I won't criticize. Okay. Does it have the same spirit? Oh yeah, yeah, that too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I think for for most of the the boxes, I think it checks most of the boxes. Okay. I, I haven't seen the one, this new one now. I saw a trailer for it. Um, it looks the same. It looks like it's, you know, it's check, it looks good. It looks like it's checking the boxes. Um, so, yeah. So I, I have nothing to do with it other than there, I could say that uh, if you like the show, because I co-created it and set the tone, you're welcome. If you don't like it, I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> you got executive producer credit and created by credit. Other than that, uh, it's, uh, that's all you need. It's, uh, it's all we need. As I say, it's jokingly, it's like, yeah, I had nothing to do with it, but I cashed the checks. <laughs> <laughs> the fun part. So having all to wear all those hats and cut your teeth on the majority of the writing of Are You Afraid of the Dark, would you say that experience uh, made taking the jump into novel writing less daunting? Um, yeah, maybe, yeah, I guess. One of the reasons I did, well, there are a couple of reasons why I went into novel writing, and it's two pretty big reasons. One was um, I write dramas, for lack of a better term. You know, they're supernatural, they're science fiction, they're whatnot, but I write dramas. Um, and getting into the late 90s, kids' TV was getting away from that. Mm -hmm. um, it was, at least in live action, definitely in live action, where it was, it was kind of sitcom-y. And I don't write sitcom type stuff. So I, I did do a show in the late 2000s called Flight 29 Down, but it was an anomaly. It was done for NBC and Discovery Kids, but it was an anomaly because most sh shows weren't being done like that for kids. So if I wanted to continue the, to write the kinds of stuff that I write, books were a good avenue to go. Uh, the other thing that made me gave me the confidence to do it was quite often over the course of my career, people would would give me genuine compliments. They'd say, DJ, I really liked writing, reading your script. And they didn't mean they liked it because they saw that it was going to make a good show. It's like they enjoyed the actual pro act of reading the script itself. And scripts aren't that easy to read, frankly. It, it, it takes a whole skill to read a script. But they say, well, I really enjoy reading, the, reading your script. So it kind of gave me the confidence to say, hmm, people actually just like the, and the only people who read it are people I'm working with. Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, this might be an interesting thing to actually eliminate the middleman. The middleman being production. And that could big middleman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so that kind of gave me the confidence. Okay, I, I can write things that people like to read. Yes, they make good shows, but people like to actually read them. So that gave me the confidence to write uh to to write books. So I don't know if it made it easier, but it gave me the at least it gave me the idea to say, yeah, maybe I can do this. So that gotcha. so that's why I took the chance. And it worked. Yep. So to date, what's the best piece of writing advice that you've received throughout your career? <laughs> In ninth grade, <laughs> I had a world cultures teacher. And, and back then it was ninth grade was junior high. And then you start high school in 10th grade. So it was the last year of junior high. And I asked this guy who was one of those young, good teacher type guys. And he said, what advice, what should I do at the high school? And he said, if you take any class, take a half year personal typing class. <laughs> <laughs> Served you well. 
And I did. And it served well. And he was absolutely correct. <laughs> it served me well. I, I'm not a I, hold on. <laughs> I can I can work for Katie Gibbs doing uh <laughs> whatever they used to do. But but joking aside, that actually it's true. It was the best advice. Um, but uh the 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 classic advice you've probably heard it a million times and, and I've kind of said it earlier today is that um, you got to write what you know. You got to write from the heart. Um, people ask me, young, especially kids ask me, they say, should I go to college and study writing? And I say, no. Go to college. I mean, it, it wouldn't be a mistake to do that. But what I suggest is go to college, study everything else and then write about it because anyone can learn to be a writer assuming you have the discipline that's the big wild card assuming you have the discipline to do it to sit, put your butt in the seat and actually do it anybody can be a can learn the craft of writing it takes a lot of time takes a lot of practice takes a lot of failure takes a lot of trial and error I mean, believe me I, the stuff that i've written the trunks of things that i've written are so embarrassing but every time you write something you learn a little bit more right um you know, it's the 10,000 hour rule, I guess. No, the more you do it, the better you're going to get. So anybody can do that. Assuming you have the discipline and that's no small thing. Anybody can do it. But that's only half the battle. The other half is to have something interesting to write about. And it's, I liken it to, it's like, imagine being a carpenter and having a set of gleaming, perfect tools that you are so adept at using, but you don't know what to build. Those tools are useless. Yep. So, so you need to experience life. You need to go out, you need to do things. You need to, back when I was making those corporate and industrial films, I traveled all over the country, met so many different types of people and different cultures, all in the United States. And it was filling up the hard drive of my experience right. that I draw upon to create characters and to create scenes and scenarios. I can go into my head and I remember what it was like shooting a film in Ames, Iowa in the farm someplace, you know, it's so... So the more you experience in life, and, and of course, reading a lot is good too. But the, the one risk there is you don't want to just copy things you've did do a different version of something you've already read. Right. Want to do something from the heart. So the more you go out there and experience things, the more you'll have to write about. So that's so experience life, experience relationships, do everything you can, because then you'll have something to write about. Well said. Um so what, speaking of the discipline, what does your discipline look like when you're, say you're trying to write a novel, do you wake up 6 a.m., five days a week, five hour sessions, what are you doing? I, I, I try to work business hours um, to maintain a normal life because everyone else is on business hours. Mm -hmm. um, so on the weekend, I usually don't work, unless there's a deadline or something, I usually don't work on the weekends. Um, but the the sad truth is, and I sit at a desk, um, I'm here all day. Um, but the fact is I'm writing all the time. I'm walking the dog. I'm writing. I get some of my best ideas first thing in the morning when I wake up before the stuff of the day starts blocking your, taking your thought process away. I've trained myself to lie in bed. Hopefully I'll wake up before I've got to get up and say, I think about the story I'm working on. It's like, what's the challenge of this story? And, and I come up with so many ideas very, very first thing in the morning before I get up and have a cup of coffee. So I, technically I'm writing all the time. I'm not necessarily doing this all the time, but but I'm thinking all the time. Um, 
I can spend five hours sitting in my office and get next to nothing done. And then come up with a brilliant idea in five seconds when I first wake up. And that's, has, that's more value than the five yeah. hours I spent doing nothing and getting nowhere. Um, so, but, I, but generally speaking, I try to maintain kind of business hours and come to the office in the morning. And, and, and it's good to have a couch there. I lie down a lot. A lot of days I spend doing this. <laughs> but it all counts i mean it sounds like a joke but it all counts because you're it's it's in here. that's yeah. going back to what i was saying i hate writing but i do like this part i do like thinking of the story I do like working it out in my head and then and then translating it into words so uh so yeah so but i try to do business hours but okay and so not call so you... a reasonable time again unless there's a deadline where I've, that i've got to meet or something like that okay so say you're sitting down for the evening to watch a list of your favorite films, several of them. What, what are you watching? Oh, interesting. Um, you know, it's kind of fun. I have a, I have a library of DVDs that are totally useless now because I could find most of them. <laughs> they're streaming. Now. <laughs> so it's like uh, I, the movies. I like everything. I, I, most everything. Um, I'll tell you what I've been avoiding and this is a function of age more than anything else, I think. Um, I tend to avoid stories that are too true to life uh, or too true to my life. Cause it's like, I live this. Why do I have to watch it? I want an it's, escape. <laughs> yeah. It, well, it could be an amazingly done. And the, the better it's done, the more I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> There, there was a movie that I watched. One that springs to mind. Uh, I think it was called Still Alice. Uh, Julianne Moore played a young woman who had early onset dementia and Alzheimer's. And I've been dealing with Alzheimer's and my family and whatnot. It's like, I don't need to be watching this. Right. I, what? Where's Ant-Man? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, but... Uh, so I, that, I kind of try to avoid that. I'm like, why did I just watch that? I'm just, uh, um, but, but I'm okay with true life dramas that are not like my life at all. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's not all fantasy. You know, it's, it's like, uh, I just watched Nomadland, which was fabulous about this woman who's, who lives in her trailer and, and, and that's, she's later in life and she's in this community. It's, it's really a wonderful movie. It's going to win a lot of awards this year very true to life not my life <laughs> so that's okay <laughs> just don't hit too close to home <laughs> exactly. well, it's, and and this is actually this isn't a new thing there was a show before your guys time i think it was on the 80s it was called 30 something and mm-hmm. uh, and it was on when i was 30 something and i'm like why am i watching this i don't need to watch this. It's, it's well done it's like why is it? um what i also do is it's kind of like I think everyone does this to a certain extent. It's like you listen to a lot of the music that was popular when you were really into popular music. So like I listen to classic rock all the time. So I'll go back and I'll revisit classic movies that, that I've loved since right. I was a little kid. Right. Um, and, and I'll sit there and I know every line of dialogue and I know every scene, but there's something comfort. It's like putting on that slipper. That's like, yeah, so my, my, my favorite movie of all time, and I probably see it, 50 times it's called the guns of navarone yes do you know the movie it's 
it was an action adventure movie from 1962 or something like that but so mm-hmm. it's kind of quaint by today's standards but it's such a great movie and so much of my writing actually stems from that movie because it's about a group of people who go on this mission and they have a big mission they've got to go on but it's also about the internal workings of this team and their interpersonal relationships and conflicts with each other and and so much of what i write is like that and it's from guns of navarone um i love watching old james bond movies i lo- love the great escape you know it's like it it's it's comfort food right um it's like eating a pizza or something like that um, <laughs> i don't watch horror movies i do watch i watch spooky movies i don't watch horror. i uh i, I loved uh haunting of hill house which wasn't a movie it was a uh short uh series on netflix oh man that was spooky that was awesome yes i've heard good things about that i have not seen it myself but i've heard great things it'll break your heart yeah oh (laughs) it's so good oh man and it's so did you watch bly manor yeah i like that too i didn't like it as much but i but i did like it i mean it was like i think they used the same sets (laughs) i think so too yeah um, that, that one story-wise didn't quite hold together as well as uh, <laughs> i couldn't i couldn't get into those kids that was my only issue i just i was just like Neh. yeah and no. that's classic literature too because that's the turn of the screw yeah, turn of the screw yeah i just I, I much preferred hill house to blind manor there, there's a moment in hill house and it was it was pretty, not a big spoiler but it's about this family moves into haunted house and bad stuff happens. <laughs> That's essentially good. really bad stuff. As, as is want to do, you know. <laughs> it happens when you move into an old abandoned house um, or, or spooky house. But there, this is, I think this speaks to getting older and just like, oh man. The scene that had the most impact on me, most emotional impact on me came, it was towards one of the later episodes might have been you know episode second to last or something like that but it was really towards the end and in the, the story just so you know it jumps around in time all the time you're jumping all over in time and, and it's not confusing you, you pretty much know where you are but you're jumping all around in time and so now it's getting towards the end of the season and you see all this stuff that happens to this family oh my god you know it's, it's scary and it's all cool and in this one scene towards the end they show the scene where they first come to the house and they're so excited. And the kids, I'll take this bedroom. I'll take that bedroom. And I'm just like, oh, my God, you have no idea what's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> like, go back. Go you're back. Like, no, go get back in the car. <laughs> the car. You don't want to go in there. Like, <laughs> I, I get too involved in these stories. <laughs> but if you get a chance, it's on Netflix. If you get a chance to see it, it's really good. So I, You sold it. I'm in there. I, I look for interesting things like that. DJ, we're not going to keep you all hostage all night, but do you have anything on the horizon? Where can folks find you? Anything? Uh, yeah, on the horizon, probably the distant horizon. I've, I've, I've kind of getting back into TV. Um, I'm developing a couple of TV shows now. Because now, remember I said how the pendulum kind of swung away from uh, kids doing dramas and whatnot, and it was all comedy. Well, now with the streamers and whatnot, whoop, it's come back again. So, uh, so I've got a couple of shows in development. We'll see if it goes to series, you know. Not going okay. to, but I, but I've been spending my time writing scripts again, and it's it's awesome. It, it's it's like it's like <laughs> it's like the old uh, gunslinger takes the old shoot irons off the shelf and like puts them on and goes, oh, yeah, I know how to, I can do this. <laughs> and and it's only twenty five pages. This is awesome. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> 
so so that's those are a couple of things that are there on them. One's an animated thing, and one's a one's a kind of a science fiction adventure. So we'll so yeah, we'll see where it goes. So that's that's what's that's what's taking up my time right now is writing that stuff, and it's and it's great. Okay, Angelique, you got anything for Mister DJ before we let him go? Oh, well, you mentioned you like to to watch movies a lot. I like to ask uh, all of our guests, um, what's your go to movie snack? What's that one thing that you like to munch on that makes your movie watching experience just perfect? The cliche answer is the obvious one, of course. But I haven't been able to do that because I've been doing a paleo diet. Ah, uh-huh. so now. It's pistachios. pistachios. Very nice. Very and, nice. And the thing that's good about pistachios is that it takes some effort, so you don't like pound them. <laughs> okay, to... so you get the ones in the shell that you actually have to extract oh, oh. with the yeah. you know yeah. force of a thousand yeah. megatons. <laughs> yes, and not not the red ones because then it's all over your. Oh face. no, ew. Yeah. <laughs> it, but it, so so nuts, and that's purely because I've been you can't have corn when you do paleo sure. right <laughs> what about you what's yours um pizza because <laughs> you can put whatever you want on it really and I, i've been doing um keto for a while so i make you know fathead crust or you know chicken crust or whatever and, you know pile on whatever strikes yeah. my fancy so <laughs> the proteins strike your fancy yeah <laughs> That's good. Yeah, well, 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 I'm not above eating pizza, believe me. But I am now, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, well, that's a great yeah. snack. Yeah. <laughs> well, DJ, it's been a pleasure talking to you, my friend. I don't think we're going to keep you any longer. Um, I will let you know when this goes up. And awesome. You have a great rest of your night, man. Thanks, Justin. Thanks, Hazel. Thank you so much. Bye-bye now. It's a pleasure. Bye.